This is a unique podcast exploring the criminal justice system and those involved and affected. We'll educate and expose the public as well as potential jurors to what takes place behind the scenes of those who are facing the system. Your host owns a litigation support firm called Justice Technology Professionals, and he works on criminal and civil cases offering support to defendants and counsel. What you're about to hear is an open dialogue opening the minds to the public to what takes place in reality as opposed to what you think takes place ladies and gentlemen welcome to the justice tech pros podcast here's your host dominic crea hello listeners welcome to part three of the rule 33 Episode In this episode, we're going to be focusing on Frank Pesqua III and his, I guess we would say, his contribution to the Rule 33 and the items that we wanted to bring to attention to the court based on newly discovered information and where it relates to Frank Pesqua III. His uh, newly discovered information came from podcast appearances. And let me just uh, give a little bit of insight as to how this process works. That's why I always say it's very important to listen to two sides, uh, to to all the sides you can actually, because in, in court it works very similar. What happens is we submit this to the judge. The judge then gives the prosecution a time frame where they can respond to this. So obviously what is the prosecution gonna do? They're not gonna just say, okay, you got us, that's it they'll fight tooth and nail and grasp at whatever they can to try to disprove your argument or try to convince the judge that your argument is not strong enough to grant a new trial. So if you don't have a fair judge, if the prosecution gives them some good points where they can at least hang their hat on, if it's not a fair judge where they're weighing the validity and the uh, impact of each submission, in its entire entirety, separately, without any bias, and you have a judge that, let's say, favors the prosecution, they'll look for one little thing to hang their hat on to deny it. So you're always at risk for that, depending on the judge. Now, again, our plans for this weren't really so much on this level, on the uh, district court's level. This was We had to submit this in order to then use it in tandem with our appeal and it just packs the appeal it gives it more meat gives it more substance and gives it more examples of why the appeal the panel of three appellate judges really needs to overturn this case and issue a fair trial because the defendants were stripped of their right to due process were stripped to the right of a fair trial for an enormous amount of different reasons which will be part of our appeal uh, these items are just segmented to the rule 33 which is newly discovered evidence the appeal covers everything any constitutional issues which we had a lot any issues that arose during the trial which stripped your defendants of a fair trial where you requested mistrial and maybe you weren't granted it so the appeal is much more voluminous than a rule 33 the rule 33 is a separate step and that is just to, um, you have to get these things on record. If you, When you do an appeal, it's all based on everything that's on record, meaning everything that was submitted to the court, everything that the court ruled on, 
now it's on record and you could use it for the appeal. So I, I just wanted to outline that a little bit, give the listeners an idea of how the process works. So you'll put this in. And a lot of defendants, when I talk to a lot of different defendants on different cases, they'll see the defense's submission and they'll get very hopeful. And I try to explain to them, just wait, give it time, because the prosecution is going to respond. And like anything else, it's a battle. The prosecution is going to try to rip up your argument, and then the defense has an opportunity to, to rebuttal that and respond and rip up their argument. So the judge then has to take all those pieces, read through them all, see whose argument's stronger, and make a ruling based on that. Who's is stronger? Who cites case law? Who, who um, is making a more valid, credible argument? And then rule based on that. Obviously, on the defense side, I'm probably self-admittedly uh, coming from a place a little more one-sided where I relate more to the defense angle. And when I do see, I'm not going to lie, when I see sometimes the prosecution's response to items, my initial reaction is, okay, this is nonsense. They're grasping at straws. It's weak. Eh, but that goes to show what I know, because then if you don't, certain judges may may disagree and they rule with the prosecutor. So that's a hard trait to let go of. You know, that's I try to I try to look at them equally, but I can't help it if if I see that their argument is weak. To me, it's just weak. If sometimes if they get something that's strong, I may say, okay, this is a problem. We have to address that, and we'll, then we'll strategize. But a lot of times I find myself going, ah, this is a weak argument. But I think that may be the defense side in me sometimes. Maybe I'm not looking at it the way I should be, but we do analyze it. The positive side on this, so everybody's aware, with the Rule 33, when the prosecution responds, which they have, they responded, and now we have to January 14th to respond to their, uh, to their rebuttal. I'm very confident in our rebuttal. There was a lot of things that um, I, I believe we will be able to capitalize on. That's all I'm going to say on that. But I, I just wanted to outline that process. So let me get started with the um, part three. I'm hoping this is going to be the last part. We'll see how it goes. It should be because I'm not going to really touch on the the end of this, which really goes into... It, it goes into... Um, we touch on case law. I'm sorry, uh, I had a uh, brain freeze for a minute. Yeah, case law and citations and how the judge, uh, the, the court should apply the law based on past cases and things like that. It gets a little boring. That's really something just to strengthen your argument. I wanted to focus more on the meat of it and what took place that caused the Rule 33 to even happen. So with that said, let me... Dive into this. Get that off my page. Okay. Uh, here we have uh, segment three. This is post-trial disclosures related to Frank Pesquale III. So these are items he talked about, which conflict that of his trial testimony. Well, I'm sorry, I stand corrected. He didn't. He didn't testify, and a lot of it has to do with how the prosecution told the defense at bail hearings. Oh, he changed his opinion. He mixed up his story. So that had a lot to do with us, the defense not calling Pasqua because the judge agreed with them and minimized it and said, okay, he changed his story. He don't think that anymore. However, lo and behold, a year later and more, he goes on podcasts 
And actually, it turns out he didn't change his story. Uh, he's sticking by it. So this is a issue of contention, and this is something that needs to be addressed. Um, I don't know if the prosecution misspoke when they said he misunderstood or what that was about, but he, he obviously didn't misunderstand because this is his story not once but twice. He doubles down on two different podcasts. Like Mr. Panisi, Frank Pesqua III has been on the podcast circuit since, in, since his sentencing. Also, like Mr. Panisi, the contents of those podcasts provide abundant additional information on a variety of subjects that places Mr. Pasqua's status as a potential defense witness at trial in a dramatically different light than it was when the defense, and Mr. Caldwell in particular, decided not to call him as a witness. They bring up Mr. Terrence Caldwell because this witness relates directly to him, as Frank Pasqua is muddying the water when it has to do with being on the scene during the murder, being involved in the shooting, and they accuse Terrence Caldwell as being the shooter, so it impacts him the most. Mr. Pasqua's accounts of the murder of Mr. Meldish. This is part A of segment three. During the podcast, Mr. Pasqua returned to his initial account of the murder of Mr. Meldish that Mr. Pesqua and his father were present and an integral part of the planning and execution of the homicide. For example, Mr. Pesqua discussed that the plot to kill Mr. Meldish was first broached with him by his father, and that, and this is in his words, after the second time I met with his father, and we discussed it, we were going to do, we were going to do like this, this fake heroin deal. We were getting Mikey, He's talking about Meldish, to come pick up some samples of heroin to give to his guys to sell, and he was supposed to get the heroin, leave, call us at another date, let us know his order, and bring us some money. And we did that. I was supposed to kill him. And the citation that we attached, we give it as an exhibit, it was the transcript for the Johnny and Jean show which was June of 2020, seven months later. So after the trial ended in November of 2019, this is now seven months later, and he's telling this story, which contradicts what was said in court at a bail hearing where the government, when we pointed out this contradiction at the time, he was telling this story, and we needed to know what story did he tell the grand jury because he was involved in a major player in getting this whole indictment to take shape. We wanted uh, to see the grand jury minutes to see if he told this story to the grand jury. And of course we were denied and the prosecution just pretty much said, oh no, he was mistaken. He knows that's not accurate now. Well, actually, he obviously wasn't mistaken because he's doubling down on it now seven months later. So this is why this is an important part because it changes the game, changes the indictment, it now questions, which we already did question and were denied. We want to see the grand jury minutes to see if this is the same story he gave the grand jury. So we're just trying to make heads or tails out of all the lies this guy's telling. And unfortunately, it's very hard when you're trying to fight up against a lie and you're trying to submit and expose the lie. you got to go through a lot of steps to get that done. So that's what we're trying to do now. Once again, expose this lie, show how the indictment in the first place was f flawed because this guy 
was testifying at the grand jury, and I'm sure he gave this cockamamie story there as well, and it didn't match up to the trial, so it creates a whole mess, and that's where we're at now, trying to make heads and tails of all this. And the bottom line is, the four defendants need a new trial based on this because of all the contradictions. This is one of the reasons. There's many, but this is one of them. Uh, now it goes on to say, Mr. Pasqua even recited specific conversation w with his father. You know what I mean? I realized when I was, at one point I was telling my father, but this is Mike, you know? This isn't some stranger, this is Mike. And there's the citation within the, the um, transcript. He also described certain counter-surveillance techniques that would enable him and his father to drive to the scene of the homicide without creating any electronic tracking data. Now, for me, I've shared this many times. This guy's just a, a low-life, lying junkie. All he does is lie. You can't believe a word that comes out of his mouth, and it still amazes me how this guy was part of the grand jury to get this indictment. Uh, I could go on a whole episode just talking about how that really amazes me, how this is who they used. This is who they believe. Even here, changing stories a hundred times, changing details, it's very obvious this guy's lying. Even the judge said it at one point. She said the easy solution is Pasqua's lying. And she was right with that. Unfortunately, her rulings didn't follow that ideology, but she was right with that statement. Mr. Pasqua explained how he would be enlisted on murder missions. Hey, leave your cell phone home. We got to go somewhere. You know what it's like when you get phone calls at 2, 3 in the morning? Yeah, go meet so-and-so over here in the neighborhood. Leave your cell phone home. You're not going to pick up a car with no GPS. You're going to pick up a car with no GPS. You already know what it is. And these are all things he's saying on the uh, podcast. And to me, I'm going to give a little opinion here. Uh, to me, it's very obvious. I could see through these characters. When he goes on these podcasts, he wants to come across as this crazy killer. He kills everybody. Toughest guy in the world. Toughest guy in every in any organization, nobody could hold the candle to him. But let's not forget his demeanor and his reaction when he was pulled over back in 2015, I believe that was. And within 20 minutes, he's asking the officers if he could work with them and give them information. So all of his nonsense about informing because of his dad or this one, that all goes out the window because the timeline doesn't match up. And we have the surveillance to show he's just an informant. That's what he does. That's, you know, that's what a lot of these informants do. See, they do whatever they can get away with. They'll push the envelope. And then when they get jammed up, they'll make excuses of why they became an informant. But here's the informant. But here's the bottom line, folks, the way I see it. All of these informants, when times were good, you know as well as I do, they were probably walking around like the biggest tough guys, the biggest uh, crazy people, as soon as things got a little hairy, things didn't go the way they want. You know, it has to be a perfect, a perfect stream, a perfect road. If things go a little different, uh, uh, I, had to, I had to inform because of this. So I had to start making up lies because I didn't like that. The bottom line is they didn't want to do the time. They could paint it however they, are, they want. They wanted to do all the crimes. They didn't want to do the time. So they wanted to see who they could tell on to get them out of that situation. That's that's the way I see it. The night Mr. Meldish was killed, November 15, 2013, Mr. Pasqua recalled, 
in his words, my father drove me there. We stopped at one of our nightclubs. We met a guy who gave us a different car because we all had, you know, brand new Mercedes. They all had, you know, GPS and shit. So we swapped for a, like a kind of late model foreign car that didn't have any GPS in it. And these are all citations from the podcast. Ultimately, Mr. Pisqua recounted, we drove out there and we were on the street. You know, we went to see Mike. I got to see my friend a few minutes before he died, you know. I was on the street when he was killed. Now, that's very, very, very important. Forget even the aspect, which is extremely important, that he's saying he was involved in the murder. Right there, I was on the street when he was killed. That means he was a witness to the murder. So for nothing else, they stripped the defense of the right to cross-examine a witness to the murder. There was no witnesses to the murder. This guy saying he was on the street when he was killed. Now we have a witness. If we would have known that prior, he would have been on the stand and we would have been asking a lot of details about what took place. He witnessed a murder. We were deprived the right to cross-examine a witness to a murder. If nothing else, if nothing else, I'm not even getting, and, and that's the, a small part of this, obviously. But I'm just using that to show how strong and impactful this is. Somebody's admitting that they witnessed a murder. They were on the street. And uh, that's, a, that's a problem. And hence why we're raising it. During a multi-part video podcast aired in September of 2021, Pasqua reaffirmed he was present. So almost two years later now, he goes on another interview. Pasqua reaffirmed he was present when Mr. Meldish was killed and that he was physically present on the scene at the exact moment that the, Mel that the Meldish was killed. Uh, typo. That Meldish was killed. Mr. Pasqua provided a detailed account during the following ex exchange with the podcast host. This is when he was on Vlad TV. Now here we are almost two years after trial. He's given this tall tale, how he was on the scene. So... I have to go back to it. I'm not trying to beat a dead horse, but it's very important. When the prosecution, when we raised this issue that he had all these conflicting stories, the prosecution said at a bail hearing, and we have the minutes for that, and we submitted the minutes to show the prosecution what they said. They said at a bail hearing, oh no, he was mistaken. Now he knows that's not what happened. He was just mistaken. Well, not once, but twice on two different podcasts at two different periods in time, He's going back to this story. So obviously he doesn't think he was mistaken. So there's a problem. We need to be able to cross-examine this individual based on these conflicting stories. Somebody who's a major part of the indictment in the first place. And what story did he tell the grand jury? That's what I'd really like to know. And that's one of the basis of our appeal, which is extremely important. Uh, the grand jury minutes and what took place. Vlad TV. Okay, and there are five guys that were involved in this hit. Pasqua nodding in affirmation. There was Teddy. He's talking about Terrence Caldwell. Chris, Christopher Londonio. My father, me. And those were the, those were like the boots on the ground that night. So he's adding two more people now to this murder. So what happened was my father picked me up at a friend's house I was staying with. We drove to, we drove here to where I am right now. There's a parking garage next door. We went and we got the, we dropped our car off to somebody who brought us an older car with no GPS, and we drove that to the Bronx. I guess wherever the studio that he was filming this Vlad TV, that's what he's talking about, where he said, uh, we drove here, 
So I guess that's where he's talking about. The studio must have been in the same location. And the way it was going to be broken down was supposedly it was set up with Mike that we were going to bring him 100 grams of dope to take to his distribution network. Have them test it, see if they can work it with it, and then we'd bring kilos if they wanted it. If that work was good enough for him, if that work was good enough for him. So that night, all I thought I was doing was going to pick up Mike, drive him downtown to pick up his 100 grams, and then hear from him later on whether he wanted, how much he wanted. Ultimately, when we got there, my father and I got out of the car, we walked down to where Mike's house was, and when I got there, we greeted him, and my father said, oh, go back to the car and get the iPad, because there's a map is in there where we're going. I knew there was no iPad in the car because we went to the trouble not to have a GPS in the car. So I didn't know what was going on, but I wasn't going to argue with. I just went back to the car. So I got in the car, and I, at that point, now I told you I had been having problems with my father. We've had some serious issues. I had a couple urns that he basically lied to me about and squashed. And at that point, I didn't know what he was working didn't know that he was working to get me arrested, but I knew we had some beefs going on before this. So right away I started to think, maybe I was the hit, to be honest with you. Send me back to, the, to a car by myself, if I'm unarmed, to get an iPad, and I know that I know is not there, so I got nervous. I started looking in every mirror, every window, you know. Heart started pounding a little bit. I figured I was going to get shot. So now he's worried he's going to get killed. He's a big killer. He's killing everybody. Now he thinks he's going to get killed. Well, like a big CIA movie. All right. Let me stop. Uh, okay. And then I saw my father coming back to the car, and he just got in the car with me and said it's done. So now he's saying his father said it's done. Like his, now, now he's trying to blame his father. He's blaming everybody for this murder. A hundred people he's blaming for this murder. I told him, I said, what the fuck do you mean it's done? And he goes like this, motions. I believe he like motioned uh, his finger to his mouth. That's one of the things my father does all the time. He doesn't want to talk about something. He puts his finger to his lips and he doesn't want you to talk. He's always afraid of being listened to or something. And we took it from there. And ultimately that was the night that Mike got hit. Again, this guy saying he was involved in it. And yet... The prosecution tried saying prosecution tried saying he mis, uh, misunderstood and he changed it. No, he didn't change it, because here it is, two years later, same story. A year before that on the John and Gene show, same story. So he didn't change anything. We were told he did, and obviously we would have we cross-examined him, and he would have been on the stand. The government didn't call him. You know, they didn't call him because of this craziness. And he goes on, and it turned out this other guy, you know, we call him Teddy, but his name is Terry Caldwell, black guy who was very close with Mike for years. Mike was actually driving him to chemotherapy for two years straight, and he was the trigger man. He pulled the trigger on Mike, and Chris was the driver, Chris Londonio. Again, look at the con confliction. This goes against the entire government's theory where it goes against everything, and this is one of the main witnesses, the guy who was responsible for the grand jury, one of the witnesses responsible for the grand jury indictment changing the entire story the podcast host challenged Mr. Pesqua with Mr. Pesqua's initial account that identified his father as the person who killed Mr. Meldish Vlad TV so in 2015 you told the feds that it was your father that killed Meldish 
while you stood a few feet away. Pasquale, no, no, while I was back in the car. Vlad TV. But then later on, Pasquale cuts him off. I was back in the car, and at that time, I was under the impression that my father had pulled the trigger because I didn't see any other people there. Vlad TV, okay. Pasqua, it wasn't until later on I realized that I was in jail with Chris. I realized that my father didn't pull the trigger on there. So here he is because Vlad kind of called him out. He, he, he's trying to think quickly on his feet and try to make the sh story match up. But even this guy apparently sees that there's holes in it. So he's saying he's involved. He was on the scene. He killed, but then he changed his story. So even Vlad TV picked up on that. Mr. Pasquale was also informed of the reason Mr. Meldish was targeted for killing, a reason entirely different than that proffered by the government at trial. So he gave a totally different reason than what the government gave at trial. Vlad TV, okay, and what was the reason they wanted him dead? Why they wanted him dead, Pasqua? Okay, um, ultimately, what I was told that day was there's indictments coming down, and we don't think he's going to hold up. I knew that was bullshit. That was it. So he just made up an entirely different reason than the government of why apparently somebody wanted Michael Meldish dead. Contradicting. The government's proffer at trial, totally different than one of the main witnesses. Benefits Mr. Pasqua received in return for his cooperation. Mr. Pasqua also disclosed the rationale for his cooperation and the substantial benefits he obtained in return. During the video podcast, Mr. Pasqua recalled that in 2013, he contacted an FBI agent who had previously given him his card, and I told him I had information on the Meldish murder. Uh, just citing Vlad TV. In return, Mr. Pasqua continued, I asked him to help me get my kids out of my parents' custody. They told me they can't do things like that, that I have to tell them everything and then see what I could get. So I dumped that phone and never called them again. So according to him, he, he called the feds in 2013 looking to flip, but only if they could help him get his kids back. They said they can't guarantee it, so supposedly he never called them again. But as we saw in the surveillance footage, that's not entirely accurate about him not calling them again. However, two years later, regaining custody of his children remained Mr. Pasqua's priority. As he states, he informed federal law enforcement, I'm going to give you guys a murder right now, and you go get my kids back for me. In return, the government's position had changed too. And they said, listen, out of, out of all the agencies in the country, child welfare has the most power out of all of them. They can go in your house with no warrant, everything. They said it's going to be difficult, but we'll see what we could do. As a result, as Mr. Pasquari tells it, Ultimately, through, you know, through me compromising my moral belief, never to rat out. <laughs> yeah, I, I had to laugh. Too many uh, people compromise, apparently, their moral beliefs. I've been seeing a lot of that, but that's another story. Also, from my wife doing a lot of hard work and proving to them that these were unfounded claims about us, and we got our kids back in six or eight months instead of two years. So there he goes. He's explaining he told him uh, we'll cooperate and he'll get his kids back earlier and saying he did. Mr. Pesqua is biased against the Lucchese family. This is point C. Mr. Pesqua also expressed bias against the Lucchese family. During one podcast, he noted, 
I made more money with Bananos than I did with the Lucchese's, but the Lucchese's were holding me back numerous times. He also resented the Lucchese's for not promoting him to a more important position, and he personally harbored animosity toward Mr. Madonna for his alleged disrespect of Mr. Pasqua's relative, some guy named Donnie. And we just give the citation where he talks about it. He did the right thing by Matt, did the right thing by everybody. And my cousin got told if I could find the time. What do you think my cousin, how do you think he felt when he went to sleep that night? Wow, if he could find the time. When he found the 33 years to do for you scumbags, right? I got no respect for any of them. Now, when I was listening to his podcast, what's amusing and shows how this guy doesn't have a grasp of reality, he's acting as if this guy Donnie did time for somebody. No, uh, he didn't do time for anybody. Matthew Madonna did 30 years of his own time in one clip, if not more, and this guy Donnie did 33 years for whatever he had did. See, if you notice, they all have a pattern, these informants. They try to blame other people. They'll try to say, well, this guy didn't do right by me, so now I got to inform to get them back. Well, that means you don't have a belief system, because from where I'm from, when you have a moral belief system, system, the actions of others can't, does not dictate how uh, I'm going to decide to follow my belief system or not for that day. That's their actions. Whatever they do, they do. But I don't, I don't trade in what I believe based on the actions of others. I don't try to justify it by saying, well, they did this, so now I'm going to do that. If I agree to something, or if I have a way of believing, or if, if, if I have a system that I follow, it's only based on myself and my conduct and what I do. What others do, that's on them. But it will not impact me. And they all use that to justify it. I find that amusing. They look to judge everybody else's actions. And if somebody doesn't do things in accordance of exactly how they think it should be done, oh, um, now we got to inform. And that's why it goes back to my belief. You're either born a lying informant or you're not. You're not made one. Because nobody could make somebody who holds their conviction strong break those convictions based on the actions of others. It just doesn't happen when you have a strong conviction. If you don't have a strong conviction, that's another thing. Then you may look at it like, oh, I'll only do this if they do this. That's different. But don't act as if that impacted your moral belief system. That just means you had a different system than you claim to have. Mr. Pesqua's antipathy towards Mr. Londonio was also on display. Mr. Pesqua denigrated Mr. Londonio's intelligence called him a lifetime loser and complained that because of Mr. Londonio's toilet habits while sharing a cell with at MDC, I wanted to strangle him. Moreover, Mr. Pesqua admitted that if Mr. Meldish's brother Joseph Meldish had not been in jail serving New York State sentences for murder, he would have preferred to align with the Meldishes and retaliate against those who wanted Mr. Meldish dead. If Joey was home and they would have told me to go kill Mike, I would have went right to Joey, and we would have killed four or five of them, and I would have stuck my deadbeat father and his boss and took control. Definitely not <laughs> go kill Mike. So this guy's saying how uh, if Joey was out, he would have teamed up, he would have killed everybody, he would have stuck his dad, uh, and he would have took control. So Frank Pasquale would have took control of things. Watch out. Frank's in charge. He's taking control. Point D, violence and murder did not require leadership approval. 
And this is another informant who reiterates that. If you remember, Panisi had said the same thing. Mr. Pasquale also confirmed, as did Mr. Panisi, that leadership approval for violence, even murder, was an abstract protocol honed more in the breach. Noting how he and others would react to being reprimanded, he stated, I can't tell you how many times, oh, I didn't know he was a wise guy. How was I supposed to know? What do you mean? You don't know. Everyone knows it. I didn't know. Mr. Pasqua's attitude was, I'll ask you for forgiveness. I'm not asking you for permission. Mr. Pasqua expanded on his approach to committing unsanctioned against a violence and murder against wise guys. Uh, that's an error there. Mr. Pasqua expanded on his approach to committing unsanctioned violence and murder against the wise guys. Those other words should have been removed. But I'm not going to go to say, I'm not going to go to say, hey, listen, I don't like this guy. I want to go throw him a beating. You're never going to say yes. Once the beating is thrown already or the guy is shot up, it makes more sense to side with me because you know I'll do it again. Like, why side with him? He's dead already. Mr. Pesquaz previously undisclosed violent criminal conduct. So these are uh, criminal conduct that came out after the trial, and none of this information was in the 3500 material, which we're supposed to be aware of all these things. During the podcast, Mr. Presqua also spoke in greater detail about his past criminal conduct than reflected in the 3500 material, particularly his commission of many violent acts at the behest of, an, of other LCN families other than Lucchese family, all of which demonstrated his capacity for participation in Mr. Meldish's murder even as the proposed trigger man, either on his own or in the service of an alternative enterprise than that charged in this case. For example, discussing his relationship and prior crimes committed with podcast host Gene Borello, also a cooperating witness with federal authorities and admitted banano associate, Mr. Pesqua explained, we went out nights, we didn't know if we were going to get killed. We knew we were going to kill people. So this is when they were on that John and Gene show talking how crazy they are and they're the craziest guys ever and toughest guys ever. So this was part of that brag session. Mr. Pesqua's penchant for violence on behalf of other LCN enterprises emerged early. I was 17 years old coming back and forth from Buffalo. I went to Buff State and running a nightclub for the Bananos with them and started like really getting into violence with them. Another bullshit story, trying to act like a 17-year-old kid running nightclubs and getting into violence. I find that very hard to believe. Nor did confinement deter him. Mr. Pesqua related that, I mean, I would take hits in jail. Like I, when you're a gangster, you're a gangster wherever you are. Mr. Pesqua provided context, noting, I got phone calls from the street all the time. Oh, this guy, you know, your friend, he wants me to hit that kid. You know, I have an opportunity. I can get to hit him. I may not be able to get that to that kid again, so I better do it. Again, he's talking about all these crimes, which weren't part of the 3,500. Now, if you notice another thing, a lot of these individuals do is they they try to tie in their own misdeeds to some kind of organized crime conduct like when he was in jail and stuff that was for all junky behavior robbing people uh, doing drugs selling drugs it, it had nothing to do with organized crime but he tries to make that tie-in that that's what's and a lot of them do that they'll do their own things and then they'll try to tie it in so I find that 
I find that very repetitive with a lot of these informants. That seems to be their go-to. They'll do these crimes, junky low-life crimes, and then they'll try to tie it into somebody else. And I said this before, I want to say it again. When I say junkie, I'm not talking about just somebody who's addicted to drugs. I look at that as two separate people entirely. You have somebody who has a habit, they have a problem, they're trying to get help, they're addicted, you want to help them. Junkie, when I use that term anyway, I'm referring to their actions of somebody who's on drugs. When they're, when they're doing drugs and they're doing really degenerate things and they don't care about anybody, they put themselves first, they're selfish, th that's when I go, I use the term junkie. I just wanted to clarify that because there are a lot of people with legitimate problems. Now you have the argument section of the memo. This ties everything together. Um, I'm not going to go through this. It gets a little boring for, for those just wanting to understand the facts of it and the rationale behind the Rule 33 and what the new evidence was. I really just wanted to focus on that as it related to each informant. This, you have the argument where you make different points to explain to the judge how the, the newly discovered evidence would have result, resulted in either, in either an acquittal or a different result at trial. So you tie everything together. This goes on to tie everything together about the Brady material, 3,500 not matching up, the, the difference between what the government was saying during trial compared to what the witnesses were saying after trial, all the contradictions. So what we do here is you use all citations. This is where a lot of the uh, invest, uh, research aspect of the briefs takes precedent within the team. You have to really assign a good team to dig up the case law, try to find rulings, prior rulings that support your argument and tie into your argument. Uh, so it's extensive on that and a lot of citations. You'll see a lot of different cases, all, all briefs, all filings, all motions. You always want to use citations. The judge always likes to see how other judges ruled on something similar. That usually gives them a gauge of how to treat a motion or treat a memo. They like to see other examples that set precedent so they could use that to go off of. So, you, so the research team for the different law firms, different def defense teams, they'll start going through and try to put those things together after you submit your, uh, your brief to really give it power to give the judge examples to cite to. So that's really it for the Rule 33. Um, I may cover our response to the government's rebuttal, and I'll be able to cover them both together rather than do the government's and then ours. Usually when we respond to it, we're going to include the government. So I, I may do that. i got to think about that. I know the listeners, I, I like to bring attention to the listeners the impact that lying informants have on these trials and how their lies come back and their lies come out. And I try to I try to have my listeners who may have defendants, loved ones in a situation, just in tune to those things. So maybe they could pay attention to somebody who may impact their loved one or somebody who may be tied to their loved one that is making up lies about them. So I felt these parts were important. I believe the listeners wanted to understand it, wanted to see exactly what was entailed. And I believe it was a uh, productive uh, three-part series. That was actually the first one I did with parts out of 70. This is the 77th episode. I think it went pretty well. Again, I just want to close by thanking all the supporters, all the listeners, everyone who shares the channel. 
and all the members of We Push Back. Um, I'll probably do an episode talking about We Push Back and how some things changed and maybe some members will be added, some members will be taken away. So I may do an episode on that amongst other things in the upcoming week or so. And that's it for today's episode. Till next time. You've been listening to the Justice Tech Pros podcast with Dominic Crea, one of the most unique podcasts on the internet, discussing the obstacles the defense team faces when trying a case, what goes on behind the scenes during pretrial and motion phase, holding defense attorneys accountable, making sure they're fighting for their clients, the difference between textbook law and how things truly play out in a courtroom, and everything in between. And everything in between. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show and we'll be back soon until then find us on twitter facebook and instagram at justice tech pros to email the show with questions and comments it's podcast at justicetechpros.com till next time this is justice tech pros podcast and dominic crea signing off